Greetings, everyone, and welcome back to a midweek edition of Betting Chicago with the Believe Sports Network. My name is Joey Christopoulos. Thank you so much for joining us today, you guys. We are going to be doing a little bit of a belated, uh, belated reaction piece to Last Dance, the Bulls documentary. That's okay. Who cares? What else are we talking about? Not much else. So I'm bringing back my buddies, Mike Choi and Aaron Hagel, to break down episodes three and four today. Mike, we'll go first. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. Doing good. Just finished a three-mile run, so uh, ready to uh, ready to uh, talk about the Bulls, episodes three and four. You've been watching Dennis Rodman run like a gazelle in these episodes three and four, and you're like, I got to get me a piece of that. I want a taste of that life. Not human. The guy is not human. Aaron, how are you doing today, man? What's up, Joey? Back up and running. Yep, back up and running, man. I had I had some modem issues. We would have been doing this on a Monday, but we're doing it on a Wednesday. No big deal. We're going to dive right in, you guys. I want to cover a lot because there's a lot to cover, and I think we're starting to really get, in, get into the thick of this documentary, and I think we're starting to get into, for diehard Bulls fans, some pieces of information that we didn't quite realize and some things that we thought that we knew, and there was some backstory to it. Um, but first, you guys, let's begin with the bombshell revelation in episode three when Jordan came out and basically guaranteed that the Bulls would have won eight championships if they had Felicio. <laughs> <laughs> or no, wait, I'm sorry. Was it Sadoransky? Who did he say? Lori Markinen? No, he needed Jim Boylan as his coach. That's right. That he needed eight straight. We're going to grind, brother. <laughs> We're going to grind it out. Yeah, that would have been MJ's coach for life. Let's start first with uh, Dennis Rodman. Clearly the focus of episode number three. Um, always a character that people are always willing to talk about. Let's start with Mike first. Um, let's just talk with your general thoughts on how you thought uh, they covered the Dennis Rodman story. Did you learn anything new? And uh, we'll just kind of go from there. It's uh, funny that you should ask me that question, Joey, because I, I get a lot of hot takes from episodes three and four, <laughs> a lot of which aren't, uh, aren't going to be probably taken uh, very well. But I'll start with uh, this episode three, um, just to prove that we're not all in the worship of Michael Jordan, the Chicago Bulls. I thought it was a weak episode. Um, I really did, uh, you know, in terms of uh, learning. And, and don't get me wrong, I could watch 80 hours of the Chicago Bulls anytime. And there were some great moments in this, but overall, there was nothing new that I didn't learn. And the thing that compounds that is ESPN, not even a year ago, put out a 30-30 on Dennis Rodman that, you know, really got down to the nuts and bolts of his life. So a lot of this, you know, uh, wasn't that new to me. It was, it was a little dull. It, it did pick up and obviously it picked up going into episode four with the larger Pistons uh, scenario with the Bulls and that 90s run. But yeah, man, I was... Uh, I was, I was kind of wanting more and didn't really get it. Aaron, your thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think maybe after watching these four episodes, maybe the route that uh, producers and the filmmakers are going with is just a more general sense for the general public of, like, what went down. We're from there. We, you know, we're a big Bulls fan, so we kind of know the story better than most people. So maybe that's how they're kind of approaching this, is it's more of, like, a general – education for everybody um but um you know last week i was talking about it. i hope that they were going to show why rodman is considered one of the best rebounders and i thought they did a, a pretty good job of that i thought uh david aldridge's quote of he's the best on ball defender i've ever seen in my life and that guy knows basketball he says he's been watching for 30 years i thought that was really cool um and the one thing i liked the most out of that was when they were talking to dennis about rebounding 
and he starts breaking down the X's and O's of how to rebound. And it's like that kind of like montage where he's talking and he's talking and he keeps on talking and he keeps on talking. It's just like, that to me was like that. I love that because that's what I wanted people to see. Like this guy's a very smart dude in regards to rebounding and basketball, you know, everything else, who knows, but he's, he was awesome at what he did. He's one of the all time best rebounders. And I loved that moment of him just talking about the X's and O's of rebounding. Yeah, and I think I'm actually going to probably take some of the middle ground between you two guys where I see both of your points, and I completely understand what you're saying. Like, on Mike's, on Mike's side of the argument, um, I'm kind of there with you in a sense of, one, I still feel like that this is going too fast. I mean, I'm, I've been waiting for this. I'm a diehard Bulls fan. It's almost starting to feel like they could have made this 20 hours when it's only 10 hours right now. And my thing is, I love what you're talking about, Aaron, because that was easily my favorite part was, I mean, besides the slow motion tipping, the multiple slow motion tips to get rebounds, which just like gave me chills. Um, But, you know, to be able to watch it with my wife, who's never, obviously she's from Pittsburgh. She doesn't really know a lot about the Chicago Bulls in the 90s. For her, this is like, you know, these are all revelations of like, holy cow, they did that. They were like this. They were that good. All the stories are true. Everything that's kind of following through with that. The part that, parts that I'm kind of disappointed about was, you know, I loved the rebounding stuff. I loved him watching film. I loved when him and MJ are on the bench trying to break down how they're going to beat the Knicks defense by saying they're going to try and drag Oakley up to the elbow and try and move Houston off a pick. Like, that was by far my favorite stuff. So every single time they went into, oh, hey, do you remember he dyed his hair? And, oh, hey, do you remember he started, he started piercing his nose and he started dating Madonna? Um, I understand that it's important for the timeline of the history, but, I mean, yeah, I'm with you on that, Mike. Like, we are just rehashing, you know, the stuff that, honestly, I feel like everybody kind of knows. I mean, Dennis Rodman did transcend sports at one point with the bad as I want to be era where I felt like he was an actual celebrity celebrity. And, you know, I guess you have to put that in there because it's a documentary, but at the exact same time, you don't need to put that in there. Show me more of the stuff about how he learned how each person shot Karam a different way off the rim. And go, go ahead, Mike, hop in. No, I was just saying you guys are both exactly right. Like we don't need any other retrospective because that kind of stuff we've seen elsewhere um, to Joey's point and to Aaron's point, like if we had more of that, the, the, the interview sessions that they shot to make, you know, the, the wraparounds for all those uh, scenes and, and, and kind of, again, highlighting more of the, the behind the scenes footage that theoretically the rest of this series will get into. That's the intriguing stuff because that's the new stuff, you know? So um, yeah, I mean, this idea that like, you know, we really get a sense that, you know, Dennis was a student of the game. He really studied. He really was a film room guy. Because I think the one thing that really comes to light is that he wasn't just, I, even even for myself, it's this idea that, like, you know, as athletic as he was, as just nonstop of a motor as he had, he was a student of the game. And that's what made him, you know, uh, world class. Aaron, hop in. Uh, one thing they actually didn't show in there I just thought of, and, and we know this as Bulls fans, but one of my favorite things about Dennis when he played for the Bulls is that he didn't, he didn't give a shit about offense at all. During layup lines, he would not even participate in layup lines. He'd be on the side riding a bike. So I always thought that was so cool. He was the only basketball player I could ever think of that like, literally said, I don't care about scoring. And he just didn't – didn't do anything about it. The other thing with Ron, real quick, about him not liking scoring or even caring about it, 
They didn't show any of those times where he would get a rebound, sprint out to the three-point line, turn around, and chuck up a three-pointer. For the Big Mac. And sometimes it, and sometimes it would go in. That was, that, that was the best. Those were the greatest cherry on the Sunday moments of sometimes other, like, perfunctory Bulls blowout wins was, yeah, when Robin would get a chance to shoot a three. Mike, hop in. No, that, Aaron, that's a great point because echoing on that sentiment, when he tells that story about how, you know, who in the world of who that plays basketball goes, hey, let's go out and shoot. You guys shoot. I'm going to rebound. It's always the other way around. Hey, can you guys come out and maybe <laughs> grab some rebounds while I shoot around? Like, he was the opposite. Like, who says that? Like, let's go shooting and I'll rebound your guys' misses. So, yeah, that <laughs> – and I suppose the other thing that I was sort of, I've sort of felt lacking in the whole thing was this concept of like, let's kind of like, let's walk this back, right? Like they did the Detroit Pistons thing. And I'm just going to kind of rattle off the stats that I rattled off during the Bulls pod just to really hammer home when we did the Bulls fantasy draft, just how awesome Dennis Rodman was in 91, 92. He had 20 or more rebounds in a game 39 times. He had 30 or more rebounds in a game three times. And in one game, he had 32 rebounds, and 18 of them were offensive rebounds. Then he goes to a Spurs team where still getting rebounds, but honestly, just like kind of a terrible teammate, right? I mean, and a word that I don't even like to throw around, but a true like the definition of cancer in a clubhouse type of player comes to the Bulls. And obviously, like you said, doesn't care about defense, you know, averages 14 to 16 rebounds a game for three years. Um, average f- like 5.5 offensive rebounds a game. But at the same time, though, like I really hope that I really was hoping they were going to drill in more into like just why I don't know why he does the things that he does besides perhaps like substance abuse, abuse issues, right? Like he obviously they didn't even cover the kicking the cameraman incident, right? Like he would just completely blow his stack. It wasn't like he came to the Bulls and I mean, Jordan. You know, it wasn't like he was a choir boy once he came to the Bulls, right? I know that that's hit on with the Vegas, the 48 hours of Vegas, but it's just not really drilled in of just how mercurial he was and how moody he was. And honestly, like in the end, I know everything like worked out, but, and we're all saying like, what a great teammate Dennis was and everything. But, you know, Dennis was a game by game kind of guy of, you didn't really know what you were going to get. And uh, I'm just surprised they didn't do that kicking incident. I'm just really surprised about that because that was a huge, huge huge deal I know it didn't happen in 97 98 but still Aaron go ahead yeah I was gonna say for me I remember like like you're just saying Joey like you're never gonna get get out of Rodman and there's times where he was an idiot and he's talking back to the refs and he gets tossed out of the game and you're like come on dude but for me that was the first moment where I was like hey that's not cool dude like kicking a cameraman at the same time I do understand why he was mad that guy could have wrecked his ankle and he could have been out for a year or, or shattered his knee. Um, and I think because of that incident, um, you know, now they have like certain areas for the cameraman to, to sit in the sidelines and stuff. But to me, yeah, that was the first time where I was like, yeah, it's a little bit, it's not cool, dude. And it's such a weird moment. I, I, I'm just finding it weird that they didn't cover that. And maybe they will at some point, which is very fair, but I was kind of surprised that it didn't make its way in there. And then, we're still doing the, uh, you know, he wore the dress to his, his, book, uh, his book signing. And we're still doing the Barbara Walters stuff, which is really just like fluff, ancillary. I mean, I guess it kind of hits the note of his celebrity. But I don't know. I, I, I'm just thinking like there's a lot of different stories in there about what made Rodman controversial. And it wasn't just because he, he dressed in a different way that no one, 
Like uh, the fact that he dyed his hair now is some sort of revelation is, is kind of silly to me. Go ahead, Aaron. Um, well, not even the negative side, but the positive side, a couple of things they talk about too. Like one of the things that he, I don't know if he's the inventor of it, but at least revolutionized it in rebounding is the fact that he was what, six, eight. And he yells boards because he, he perfected that tipping technique. He wasn't taller than these guys. He couldn't necessarily out jump these guys. He couldn't grab the ball at the height of the rebound. But he tipped, tip, 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 tip till he got it, secured the rebound. And that guy like perfected it, man. And they didn't really go into that too much either, which I kind of wish they had gone into. A couple other quick things about Rodman, they didn't go into that I used to love. Uh, one, man, they didn't show it. One was um, when Michael would, would shoot a shot. Rodman would turn his turn around with his back to the basket, start walking down the court with his arms up in the air, and not even look to go if, if it was going to go in because he knew it was going to go in. And then two, I used to love when he would grab a rebound, like kick his legs out for no reason at all, other than flair. <laughs> yeah, kick that, his legs out like it would be like there was no point. And but that it was, was honestly so awesome. Like he just loved it. That was my favorite stuff too, right? Like, don't tell me like who he's dating at the time. Show me more slow motion of this amazing gymnast, just the way that he ran, the way that he carried himself. And you're right, even with the tips, I know we keep going back to it, but do you realize how hard it is to not only tip a basketball like that, but tip it straight up in the air the way that he did four, five, six, seven times? I'll never forget. I don't remember who wrote the article, but Chicago Tribune actually did a whole Sunday spread on it once about how he strengthens and tapes his fingers to be able to tip the basketball like that in a way where he can hit the tip of it and not jam his finger or break his finger. And I just thought that stuff was incredible. I wanted more of that stuff and I didn't get it. Is that what you're feeling like, Mike, is what we were kind of lacking? Yeah. I mean, again, like him breaking down the science of rebounding, you know, you have the opportunity to, to really kind of, grill those points out with the guy who is considered one of the best rebounders of all time and the fact that again to your points they did basically a retrospective package on him that goes at the beginning of like a you know a hall of fame ceremony type piece or something like that instead of like really getting down to the nuts and bolts you know again like the parts when he was talking about well I know that when Larry Bird shoots he's got this kind of rotation and when Magic Johnson shoots he's got this kind of rotation uh you know you know the fact that like he really really knew these like little uh, bits of minutia that I mean that made him like again like one of the world's best rebounders like that was the intriguing stuff to your point Joey not that like oh he saw Demolition Man so he decided to dye his hair blonde you know yeah yeah give me give me that instead of what was the movie he was in Double Threat is that what <laughs> <Yeah>. it was Van Dam yeah Van Dam Van Dam streaming on your local streaming services now um, let's let's move off of let's move off of Rodman a little bit let's talk a little bit more. Um, I do want to hit Phil, but like, let's just hit MJ real quick. Something I wanted to, uh, something I thought it was very telling. And I think it's something that for Bulls fans, we've been trying to figure out for years and years and years where Michael Jordan was in our lives every single day. Like if we weren't drinking Gatorade, we were wearing Nike shoes or wearing Hanes or eating a McJordan special or watching the movie Space Jam on and on and on wearing his clothes, you know, rocking his gear, doing everything, such a big part of our lives. And then you know, it's, it's really honest that from 98 to this point, obviously he's gone on to become an owner in the NBA. He's become a billionaire. His brand is still immensely popular, but really is kind of like faded away from the limelight and just really isn't a part of 
really anything. I mean, he never was a really big political guy. He never really got involved in any of that. And I thought that was a very interesting moment where they ran that montage of that final season when Michael Jordan is like still at the apex of his celebrity. And in every single post game, the same question, are you retiring? Are you thinking this is the last time you're playing in the stadium? What do you think about next year? On and on and on the same questions. And we have conversations all the time via text between the three of us about what modern players are like now and how we deal with the media and all that stuff. Russell Westbrook, cough, cough. Uh, But like the way that Jordan handled it is so cool and professional and really just like the blueprint of how to act as an athlete. You can be as upset as you want. You can be as tired, as frustrated as you want. And I'm sure there were times when Michael wasn't talking to the media, especially in New York too. He's definitely stopped talking to them with all the Atlantic City stuff going on. But just those clips of continuously answering the same questions over and over again, sometimes with a smile on his face, sometimes with at least, at least he put some kind of thought into it. And it just sort of makes me think that he disappeared because after he retired, he literally gave everything that he needed to give of himself to us and to the media and was like, screw it. I don't need it anymore. You know, I don't need to continue to play this game. I'm rich. I've won my titles. I'm the best ever. And I just kind of want to hear your guys thoughts on that because it is a big question of like, you know, where's Mike been? You know what I mean? Like we don't get to see him at the United center and give him a standing ovation, you know, sure. We see him in a commercial or two, but that's kind of it. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think actually that's actually what's helped uh, maintain his mystique a little bit. You know, when in this age of the twenty-four hour news cycle, right, when you have all these celebrities that you see all the time, you you kind of get sick of them after a certain point, right? So the fact that like MJ, other than you know uh, the random Haynes commercial here or there, or the random appearances like you were talking about here or there has really been on the spotlight. So, uh, you know, kind of, to me, has maintained the mystique of like, ooh, what is this guy about? Where has he been? What's his story been? Because if he's out there promoting himself day in and day out, it's like, well, okay, you've been there. So there's no thirst for, uh, you know, like kind of getting this retrospective of your life uh, since you've kind of like walked away from the spotlight. So I, I actually appreciate that about him. And I guess maybe the thing that I'm kind of, it's kind of dawning on me right now is typically what do we see when players retire, right? They do two things. They either become a coach and go back into the game or they go to TV and talk about the game. Right. And he's honestly really done neither one because he's an NBA owner, which I is the only uh, ex athlete to ever really do that. So he doesn't really have to be involved, but you know what I mean? Like look at magic Johnson retired, did TV, Larry bird retired, became a coach, Isaiah Thomas, retired, became a GM, you know, on and on and on. One way or another, the guy, the, most of these athletes either stay in the game somehow. Jordan did it, but now he's doing it in such a quieter way that I think maybe is unexpected. I wouldn't call it disappointing. I just think it's unexpected that we don't hear from him, and I think it's really built up the momentum for hearing from him now, especially talking about the 98 year. Well, I think it's just uh, in, in, yeah, in well, a good rate. Oh, wait, wait. Uh, Aaron, go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Troy. Hit it, Troy. Well, I was just saying that I think, and and I don't fault him at all for this, you know, is that ever since pretty much day one, he's been very calculated in his media persona and how he wants himself to be portrayed. So again, to your point, Joey, you know, 
he is super professional because he knew that that was something that was required of his role, not only as, you know, the, the lead of the Chicago Bulls, but in essence, the lead of the NBA. Uh, so, yeah, he, you know, and I'm sure we'll touch upon this later. You know, he was very professional and very gracious when, uh, you know, the Pistons had beat him year after year. And he would go, you know, congratulate them and say, you know, uh, uh, you know, good luck in the next round of the championships, you know. So I think very much so he knows the pre- he knows the persona that he needs to portray to the public. And he does what it takes to kind of do that because he's a brand. He's got a business. He still has, you know, all his Nike brands. So Air Jordan. So it's like. He knows what he has to do to maintain that presence globally. Yeah, Aaron. I thought been... one of the cool things they, yeah, one of the cool things that I liked in there, um, once again, for people outside of Chicago, is just seeing how much press that guy had after every game. Every game, there was what, how many, 20, 30 reporters at his locker? Every game. If he went out in the street, mobbed. Like, the, the pressure that that guy was under – like nobody can compare it. Like, I don't know, pop stars and stuff maybe, but like, and to be able to respond to everybody's questions, keep his cool, answering the same questions over and over, but just that crush of media all the time. And he was always a professional about it. Cause going back to the choice that he was a brand, he knew what he had to do. He couldn't really speak his mind. Like you said, he didn't get political. That's one of the things he always stayed away from that. Some of the criticism that people give Michael is that he could have, you know, stood up more for whatever causes and he did it. But, you know, that's what that, that was the choice he made. He's a billionaire. He's the only, I don't know, are there any other former players that are part owners of NBA teams? I mean, you can't buy into an NBA team unless you got Michael Jordan money. So, I mean, he's on a different level than everybody else when it comes to that, too. Yeah, I just, I, I'm sort of just kind of rationalizing, you know, why, why it's been like that the last 20 years. And I think it makes a lot of sense. And, you know, you draw the parallel now between LeBron and I, I, I think LeBron is just as close to a model class athlete as you're probably going to get on and off the court. But the difference is, I mean, there are huge differences, right? I mean, like the way that the reporters have access to the locker rooms now are completely different. The way that the media scrum sessions go are completely different. If you also notice LeBron doesn't do really just any willy-nilly interview with whoever whenever he wants. He doesn't do exposés or like spreads or any or feature spreads or anything like that. He really controls his own brand. When he does speak, he makes sure makes sure that he's the producer on it like the shop on HBO. And you just kind of look back at how Jordan operated in the 90s and you just go, "Holy shit, you know, it, it, I mean, you know, it made him rich beyond its wildest dreams and became one of the greatest, most recognizable faces probably on the history of the planet. But after 98, once he retired, I totally understand why the guy never wanted to be like, hey, I'll do countdown or you know what I mean? I'll do the post game for the Bulls with Kendall Gill. You know what I mean? Like, it just sort of makes sense. It's like just sort of let the man be in peace. And I understand people want to criticize him for that. But I don't know. I, it kind of makes sense to me. I don't know. Yeah, I agree. No, I mean, it's like, well, yeah, why he did that for so long, getting crushed every day for so long talking to media. I wouldn't want to talk to anybody. I mean, who's going to talk to you? Plus, I mean, you know, as far as I know, he doesn't have like a ton of like super close friends. You know, he's like one of those guys. So it's like, he's cool, chilling, owning a team, hanging out with his family, playing golf, having a cigar. Like he doesn't need anything. He doesn't need the limelight. He had the limelight. Aaron, I need to correct you. He had the Sniff Brothers. That was his team. <laughs> I hope we I hope we talk about the Smith brothers. 
I hope we talk about them at, at, at some point in this pod. Oh man, I think that's that a perfect. Awesome. That's a perfect time for a tease right now. I'm gonna we're gonna do a quick break with our sponsor. We're gonna come right back in a second because today's episode is brought to you by BetOnline.ag. You guys. Look, no NBA, no NHL, no MLB. You might think there's nothing to bet on, right? But betonline.ag still has hundreds of places to wager, including their online casino and poker and blackjack. But sports aren't totally done. There's still eSports, which has been rocking right now. American Idol, Big Brother, The Elections, Spelling Beat, and a 750K poker series. There's still fun to be had, so go to betonline.ag and use the promo code MYPOD100 to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, betonline.ag and use our promo code MYPOD100 to get a little welcome bonus on your first deposit. BetOnline, your online online wagering experts. We're back with the pod here with Mike Choi, Aaron Hagel, and the Sniff Brothers. Um, <laughs> I've got some stories. Um, <laughs> all I'll say is that I guess like the story goes with the background. I don't know about the Sniff Brothers specifically, but a lot of the dudes that Jordan would put on his security detail team usually came from either former Secret Service or like like deep state like government guys. Like he his his team was the <laughs> was the ultimate man. Like. I don't know if I want to call it a SEAL team, but I mean, I think those dudes, I think those dudes got some secrets. You know what I'm saying? Well, it's just, I have a lot of questions about the Sniff Brothers, Joey. Is it like, is, is well, it a careful, careful how you tread here? Cause they could be listening and they will find you. But it's just, it's, it's so bizarre. Cause like, um, you know, it, it's such in contrast to when you see the posses of today's athletes where it looks like, you know, it's like this rap crew that follows around the main guy around. It's like, these guys were like middle-aged, like I think most, like a lot of them were like white dudes and then middle-aged black dudes. And it was just like, these were the guys that were part of Michael Jordan's not only security team, but also kind of his inner circle, as it turned out. Um, they mentioned his one driver that I knew that kind of like drove, uh, drove him for the, uh, the majority of his career. So, I mean, yeah, it's just like, you know, are you a Sniff Brother for life? You get like a robe? Is there like a initiation period to become a Sniff Brother? Like so many questions. Yeah, this was not like a group of like his cousins and a couple of buddies from high school, right? Like all those dudes like served on the grassy knoll, like in 69, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like they were all around, like they're all Clint Eastwood in, in the line of fire. You know what I mean? Like they've seen, they've seen some shit, but they got taken off the job. Um yeah, I think uh, I, I'm hoping that there's going to be some more revelations there with that Intel team. But I could also see that being a scenario where Jordan keeps that close to the vest. Is what I'm thinking. And there's a story that I'm not going to tell. I'll tell it to you guys afterwards, which I think could possibly be a sniff, brother. But what I do want to <laughs> I do, I do get into, um, what I do want to get into, though, is I do want to get into a little bit of, um, I want to get into Phil for sure. And I kind of want to start it, and we'll get into Phil because, uh, I, I don't know, I was sort of a little disappointed in Phil's story, too, as well. They kind of sort of brushed through it a little bit. I was kind of hoping that they would take a little more time in his life because, I mean, you start, you're literally counting the championships while they're showing the montage of his life. You're going, okay, there's one with the Knicks. Okay, there's one with the CBA, on and on and on. But my question is, and I think what's really, really interesting about what's going on right now is, you know, we talked in the last episode uh, betting Chicago about how Jerry Krause screwed up the team, right? And 
I think as this goes along, I think we're going to be on a, on, a, on a seesaw here of how we feel about Krauss, and that's probably how it should go, right? And I think, obviously, they, they released that information in there that, like, right in the middle of the season, Jerry Krauss once again says that Phil Jackson will not be coaching the team next year. Like, the dude seriously obsessively can't help himself. Like he goes to a restaurant and they go, what can I get for you tonight, Mr. Krause? And he goes, I don't know, but I won't have Phil Jackson. Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's like he couldn't, couldn't help himself. It was ridiculous. But I'm starting to kind of like lay it out because, you know, you're starting to lay down the track. And I just want to like bring out a few things to hear to you. And these are all things that at one point or another that Jerry Krause did that pissed off either Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, or Phil Jackson. But Jerry Krause – Traded Charles Oakley for Bill Cartwright. It worked. He fired Doug Collins, which pissed off MJ and brought in Phil Jackson. It worked. He entrusted power and loyalty into Tex Winter and the triangle offense, which Michael didn't like. That worked. Uh, Traded for Rodman by trading Will Perdue. Kind of controversial by some. Looks like the team uh, was in on it, and it worked. Moved on from B.J. Armstrong and brought in Ron Harper and Steve Kerr. Also worked. After BJ made an all-star team, he got uh, unprotected for the expansion draft and went to the Toronto Raptors. Traded Stacey King for Luke Longley. That worked. Bringing Tony Kukoc with Scotty and Michael Hayden. That worked. Bringing in Bison Dele in that final couple run when Dennis Rodman started <laughs> losing effectiveness. Also kind of worked. I mean, that is a pretty long list of moves that the players internally did not like. But in the end, that goose was good for the gander. Am I wrong? Aaron, go ahead. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I don't think his moves were ever in doubt or questioned. Later on, at the time, like I said, I was not happy about Doug Collins getting fired. It's never been about the moves, I think. Last week, I, I was saying that the one word that kept on popping in my head was just unnecessary. You know, like yeah, how he unnecessary could, he all the drama himself. was. He made the right moves, but his ego wouldn't let him just take a back seat and say, hey, man. It's not me. It's these guys. They're, they're doing it. He had to have that. His ego overtook everything, and that's what ruined everything. was how he treated these guys. Every year, the, the contracts, having to renegotiate. It was all the drama that he created. The moves, to me, were never in question later on. And it's fair to say, right, like, did he get on such a, a heater, on such a hot streak, that he literally thought he couldn't do no wrong, and, you know, his hubris got in the way, and, uh, unfortunately, his last move, you know what I mean? He's rolling the dice everyone's around him right now they're blowing on that dice and he rolls it and is like i'm gonna rebuild this team without phil and michael and then craps out and 22 years later you know we've the bulls have been to one eastern conference finals uh what do you think about that mike well you know let me preface this uh next statement by saying like it's still unforgivable that he broke up that uh that championship team but uh this is another hot take um i'm starting to get a little sympathetic for jerry kraus um as as we talked about Everything he did leading up to that sixth championship was ultimately the right move. And, you know, again, exactly like Aaron said, I think his ego got in the way. But again, if everything you do cumulatively works, of course you're going to think your next move is going to work. And let's be, you know, let's be realistic. He, in terms of the coaching situation, he basically did that twice. He brought in an unproven Doug Collins uh, uh, to basically replace Stan Albeck, right? And then he brought in Phil Jackson. Um, and I, I gotta believe, hopefully they'll cover it maybe in future episodes. Uh, but there's gotta be some drama with that Phil 
Jackson, Doug Collins dynamic, because even to Doug's Collins own, uh, own sentiment, he basically knew that he was going to get replaced in the middle of his second year. So, um, and again, ultimately that work, that move worked bringing Phil in to ultimately replace Doug. So, you know, even from a coaching standpoint, all his moves work. So when you think that everything, I mean, I can't blame the guy when you think that everything you've done has shown and proven to work, you kind of think that you can do no wrong. And ultimately that was his downfall, but uh, you can't fault the guy, you know? So, and again, we kind of talked about this in the last pod, you know, uh, Jerry Reinsdorf, a hundred percent knew everything that was going on. So to kind of pin all this on, on Kraus, you know, again, we won't ever know the inner workings of their relationship, but you know, it's a little bit of a, of, of, of pinning a scapegoat title on the Kraus, in my opinion now. And he just couldn't, keep his mouth shut i mean and the thing that you know not to you know a psychoanalyze a man i've never met before but at the same time you know it seemed like all the while you know he wanted to be on the victory parade he wanted to be on the float he wanted to be on stage at grant park at the end of every year and he wanted to hear those cheers and he wanted the 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 respect and he wanted the legacy and i think if he had just been able to like keep his mouth shut and let it marinate, I think it would be easily uh, something that we would all accept. But instead, now he is the scapegoat for the reason why, you know, the Bulls didn't try and defend their title and go for four. And obviously there was a strike coming that next year. There's also those stories about how Jordan would have missed 30 to 35 games if he had, because he sliced his tendon open and needed to have finger surgery, uh, slicing open a cigar, which is weird in its own sense but i just like I, I i completely forgot it was a revelation to me that i thought i remember every single little bulls detail and then completely forgot that halfway through the season after they go then the first month of the year they go eight and seven they got all the way up to what 24 and 11 they start kind of rolling again and just before they get scotty back jerry Krause again reiterates that phil jackson will not be the coach next year it just kind of blows my mind um and I think it kind of asks the question, I want to ask you guys both this, and you guys will each get a chance to answer. You know, who do you think is the greatest general manager in Chicago sports history? Uh, I'll go first on this one. Um, as you guys know, I'm not a Cubs fan, so I don't care. Hawks, I don't know a ton about. Uh, Bears are probably my number three, but my number two are the White Sox. I'm going to go with uh, Kenny Williams in my lifetime, at least. Um, Kenny doesn't always succeed, but the one thing I always appreciate about Kenny is that he always tried. It didn't always work out, but at least he tried. And to me, that was, that was all I could ask for as a fan. Yeah, before we go to Mike, real quick on the White Sox, they are, they are like the – they've always brought in like kind of glitzy big-name players, right? Now, whether they actually brought them in during their prime is probably a different conversation, but – uh, for a team that you probably consider middle market for the White Sox, they'd always bring in like they'd always swing a trade right for Freddie Garcia, or Jake Peavy, or Jim Tomey, or even you know the latter the latter day Ken Griffey Jr. Um, and obviously the work that he did to bring in that World Series team, which we could do a whole pot on a different day. Obviously he completely re- <laughs> he re- he remade that roster in a, in less than a year, and then they went out in the World Series. So I do like that pick, Mike. Is Jerry Krause your number one Chicago sports GM of all time, or does he not make the list? Uh, not even make your top three. Who knows? 
No, he 100% has to be the greatest GM in Chicago sports history. Now, that doesn't mean he's my favorite GM in Chicago sports history, but I mean, results speak for themselves. Six championships. Um, you know, in the whole paradox of why we hate Jerry Krause so much uh, for disbanding that team is the fact that they won six championships. Had that not been the case, we would be like, yeah, replace Phil Jackson. Let's go in a new direction. Yeah, let's get rid of Scotty Pippen. Let's get rid of, you know, all these other, you know, the ancillary players. But the, the, the fact that we were able to get those six championships is the whole reason why ultimately we hate him for trying to ultimately unfortunately disbanding it. So um, he's got to be. I mean, he's just got to be. Yeah, I mean, now that I'm trying to break it down in my head, let's just say, you know, from 86 to 98, the dude was just an all-timer, right? Like as hot as hot can get, seemingly every move he made uh, worked out. And then maybe a part of it too that we're trying to reconcile with still is, you know, he was still our general manager from what, 98 to like 2003. And those five years was just one disastrous move after another. Tim Floyd, you know, drafting Elton Brand and then flipping him, um, you know, like the very next year to get the rights for Eddie Curry and Tyson Chandler. That ended up not working out. Um, I'm trying to remember, was he the one that signed Ron Mercer? Who knows? Bad move either way. Um but yeah, I mean, you've got to really, I mean, he's, he's, there's no way that he's not in the top three. I, I would have a strong debate with anyone. I mean, you could put the Stan Bowman in there if you want to. You could put, I think Kenny Williams definitely deserves to be in the conversation. The Jed Hoyer, the Theo combination definitely is in there. Nobody from the Bears deserves to be in this conversation. But you can't have a top <laughs> Chicago sports champ of all time without talking about Jerry Krause. And I think that's kind of sort of being played out a little bit throughout this documentary. And I think ultimately we are going to leave very conflicted because we are going to be so pissed off at him at the end of this thing, because it was over. You know what I mean? It was gone. And the only way that we can really point our finger is to point the finger at, at Jerry Krause. Mike, go ahead. Well, and uh, here's another hot take that people might not like, but uh, you know what? Um, and this might lead us kind of into the meat of episode four. Um, Phil Jackson isn't innocent in this whole situation by any means. Um, you know, as we saw with his tenure with the Lakers, he had an acrimonious relationship with Lakers ownership to the point where he actually, uh, I mean, he got fired. I mean, he stepped away in 2004, but you know, he, he ultimately got fired because he at that point didn't have a great relationship with Kobe, much less the uh, bus management, although he was giving it to Jeannie. Um, but, uh, you know, so he had an issue there and then he had an issue uh, uh, when he was, uh, the, uh, I don't know, was he the GM or, or vice president of the Knicks? But he, uh, he was vice president of basketball operations. Yeah, and yeah. He, had, he had kind of an acrimonious time in New York as well. So, um, you know, we can even go into where, you know, they kind of get it, into it a little bit, but like uh, it was a very calculated and, and quite frankly cunning move that he kind of sidled up with Tex Winter. You know, we kind of saw that as his in to get in the good graces of Jerry Krause, which we have, we, we have to remember that Jerry Krause at one point was Phil Jackson's biggest advocate. He's the one that tried to get him onto that Stan Albeck, uh, uh, you know, assistant coach for Stan Albeck. And then, you know, uh, you didn't, you didn't, I guess, dress well for that meeting. So Stan Albeck was like, no way. But like Jerry Krause was his biggest supporter and is really the reason why Phil Jackson is, uh, became a coach in the NBA and then went on to have the legacy that he had. So Phil by no means is an innocent person in this situation. 
yeah, he tried to get him hired and it didn't work, right? And then even the following year after that, he tried to get him hired again. So clearly, like, yeah, Jerry Krause is a big fan of Phil Jackson. And that's my thing with Phil right now is I'm feeling underserved on the Zen master right now. And I can't tell if we're going to be getting some more info as these episodes go on, which I'm sure we will. But there's definitely a lot of brand protection going on, right? Like, let's be honest, for all, like, the dream catchers and, like, the hot tea and the yoga and the sun salutations and all that stuff. Like, you know, Phil's probably just, you know, a grouchy little sass pot in the morning. You know what I mean? I don't know. Like he's probably a guy that maybe on a few days uh, is great to talk to. And probably on the next day, you probably want to stay 25 feet away from him too, as well. And keep in mind, you know, he was, he was an NBA center in the seventies. You know what I mean? Like if you didn't sharpen your elbows at night, you know, you were probably going to get killed in that league. So I can imagine that he definitely has a competitive streak that probably makes him hard to deal with. And I definitely think there's some, there's some information and some tidbits about stuff going on behind the scenes that we don't really completely understand. And, and Doug Collins, who we all think we all know is um, just a straight laced uh, competitive, great dude, great heart kind of guy. And he would not go there, right? He would not answer any more information than I had an intimation that they were grooming Phil for the job. Aaron, go ahead. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, going back to your point earlier about, you know, how after Jordan left, he hasn't really given too many interviews. Phil hasn't either since he left the Knicks. So I was really, really looking forward to, you know, and hearing him talk and give more, you know, juicy tidbits behind the scenes. But he seems very reserved, very guarded, and it's very unphil like. I don't know if he's trying to like rehabilitate his image or something or what's going on, but been kind of boring listening to him talk actually it's, it's a little kind of it's a little clawless i thought they i thought he was gonna kind of you know kind of scratch and you know what i mean like jab a couple of players here here even if they were some of the smaller guys on the roster but no not really there's really hasn't been a lot i mean a lot of the triangle stuff has been really interesting but i think really more to mike's point is that's really kind of more about how phil sided with tex and tex and phil were jerry Krause guys and eventually they were able to sort of pitch what they thought their vision for the team could be. And they succeeded. And that's how Phil became the coach. Mike, go ahead. Yeah, I was really hoping and maybe, you know, obviously there's still six episodes left. So maybe they'll get into it a little bit, although I feel like this was the window for them to do it. But there was a lot of drama on that Doug Collins slash into Phil Jackson regime, it seemed like, you know, where they I never knew this, but I didn't realize that Doug Collins basically relegated Tex winner to like the scorers table area that he wouldn't let him sit on the bench anymore. That's how, you know, acrimonious their relationship was. I'm using acrimonious a lot. Um, but yeah, it was beautiful just, baby. Keep going. Yeah, Keep doing it. Like, so there was a lot of drama there and I wish they would have kind of jumped into that a little bit. Um, and then I also wish that this is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but I could watch a whole episode on Phil Jackson's coaching career in Puerto Rico. There was some, like, there were some facts that they were thinking about his <laughs> yeah. Puerto Rico time about how they were sacrificing chickens and then I guess like what the team owner like shot a referee in the leg and the only punishment he got was that he was banned from home games. Like give me an episode on his Puerto Rico days, man. I mean, what's great about that, right? Is your, it, it just legitimizes that uh, Phil was not a poser hippie. You know what I mean? Like he's got, he's got the credentials to bring all the hippy dippy stuff, uh, you know, into the nineties. Uh, which everyone thought was like, and that was the thing too. And I hope they get into it is like Phil Jackson was all about mind games. You know what I mean? Like 
if you don't think he's aware of what he's doing and what he's saying when he sits down for an interview, then you don't know Phil Jackson, right? And just the way that he would play the refs again in those Knicks series, those little comments in the post game that were either a little catty or sarcastic or passive aggressive, whatever they were, like he always had, he always knew exactly where he was and kind of what his mission was whenever he spoke. So I'm kind of interested why he's so close to the vest thus far in the dock. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, he kind of reminds me of like a, like a championship boxer. Like playing mind games with you constantly, you never know what he's thinking. Even when he says something, you're like, does he really mean that or is there something behind that? And he just smiles and you never know. And that would just mess with teams all the time. And I was going to say to your point, Joey, about him and the refs, you know, he'd say something in the paper about the refs, whichever way he wanted the calls to go the next game, he would say something and then the next game – uh, lo and behold, maybe those, those calls start going Phil's way. Yeah, and I don't know. Maybe we're like, uh, you know, maybe we're on the couch right now lying down and we're starting to unearth new details that we didn't realize before. But maybe that's why Jerry Krause never could trust Phil Jackson. He was like, hey, look, I found this guy. I vouched for this guy. It didn't even work at first. I tried to coach him up, make him more presentable. He finally got the job. He ascended to head coach. He became a head champion. This whole dude's. This whole dude's life, he owes it to me. And now all of a sudden I'm getting these weird, you know, <laughs> I'm getting these weird cryptic, you know, jabs or comments. And then he, Jerry Krause is walking out of the room being like, does this guy like me? Or like, wait, did he just say like, I can't even get on the same page with him. And maybe that's also something that's sort of built into the relationship, which created a distrust that kind of, you know, eventually led to a break. Go ahead, Mike. Well, you know, and we talk about Jerry Krause's ego, but Phil's ego must have gotten, you know, huge as well. Because I, 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 I want to pose a question to you guys, and I don't have necessarily opinion either way as of yet, but is Phil Jackson an overrated coach? You know, he, yeah, he's, he's got the, what, 10 championships. But, I mean, he had Michael Jordan and Scotty in his prime, and then he goes to the Lakers, and he has Shaq and Kobe in their prime. So I, I don't know. Is he, is he a byproduct of just circumstance, or was he really a great coach? Because I, I tend to think that if Doug Collins would have stayed, you know, it was inevitable that, you know, the Bulls would have won a championship under him. So I don't know. It, I, I, don't, I don't know what my opinion on that is either way, but it, it's a question I've been wondering about, you know, uh, for decades is if he's really just a byproduct of the talent that he had on his squads. Uh, Aaron, go first. I got one too. Go for it. Yeah. I just think, I think, you know, coaching superstars is always a double-edged sword, right? Cause like when he went to the Lakers, I'm like, Oh, okay, great. He's got Shaq and Kobe. Like anybody can win a championship with that. And a lot of people probably could. However, you know, there's delicate egos in the NBA. And to me, that would be the most difficult thing is dealing with those delicate egos that Shaq and Kobe had or Michael and Scotty had or whoever and trying to finesse that to make it work in your advantage because that can implode easily, you know. So to me, that was, I thought his best asset was getting those superstars to buy into what he wanted to do and to be able to get along enough to the point where they won championships. Yeah, I agree. Like, the, the obvious one is the triangle worked. And what it sort of did was it sort of augmented what they were already doing with the greatest basketball player of all time and sort of added a little bit more of emotion to allow Michael to kind of pick his spaces a little bit and allow other guys to step up and hit some shots. I, did th I definitely think Phil deserves some credit for that. And I think what it is is, 
I don't know if he's like the greatest X's and O's coach of all time, but man, like just think about, you know, he had, when he wanted Scotty to, you know, guard Magic Johnson, Scotty was like, let's do it. You know what I mean? And that's just as much a credit to Scotty as it is for Phil, if he came up with the idea at all, right? He had Dennis Rodman at the end of his career diving horizontally to save balls, you know, from going out of bounds, right? He had Ron Harper, who was averaging 20 points a game, playing less minutes than the points he averaged the year previous, like less than 19 points a game, you know, all for the championship. Can you say that's all Phil? Of course not, but I think of it as if you got together with someone, and I think this is what happened when he went to the Lakers. He was like, man, we've got all these great, amazing players, but yet it's not working and it's not fitting. Why is that? And I think he was able to get a pulse on a particular way to create a culture for a team that allowed them to be successful. And I think that that is a different type of leadership that I don't think is you know, necessarily the way that we look at coaching, strict coaching. But I definitely think, you know, I, I feel the same way about Joe Madden. I don't think he's like the most innovative baseball mind of all time, but I think he was able to come in and present something to a group of players that allowed them to succeed. And Ozzy too, Ozzy Guillen did the same thing. He was like, oh, well, this team needs me to talk, so kind of take away the pressure from what they're trying to do and be successful. And for whatever reason, you know, that's the, that's the different type of leadership that he brought. And I definitely think he deserves credit for that. Aaron, go ahead. I was just going to, the, the one coach that I was just thinking of as far as X and O's master is Bobby Knight, right? Guy's an X and O's master, one of the greatest college coaches ever. Obviously, college and NBA are different. But can you imagine that guy trying to coach a superstar? No way. There's no way. So that's why I think Phil was very, very good at that, managing egos and trying to get people motivated in their own individual ways where some coaches, it's just straight across the board for everybody. Another guy that comes to mind for me is Larry Brown. Now, of course, he did win a title with the Pistons, but think about it. Like he went to so many different jobs and was successful everywhere he went because I think he was a great basketball mind. But what was, the, what was the thing on Larry Brown was after three, four, five years, you know, the players couldn't stand him anymore, and they hated him. And, you know, for better or for worse, he did win that one title, but he never really won anything else. And you sort of have to ask yourself, like, you know, is it beyond just what you're writing on the clipboard? And it's about how you're leading this group of men to succeed. And that was something that Phil uh, is undoubtedly one of the greatest, you know, coaches of all time at doing that. Um, so I think we got, we're going to hit two more topics and I think actually, you know, I'm going to hit, we're going to hit two, we're going to hit two, uh, lightning round topics. And then we're going to finish with the last one. And, uh, the first one, we don't have to go into too much depth with this, but Hey guys, Judd Bushler sighting. Oh my <laughs> gosh. Judd Bushler. Judd. How, how did they get him? What kind of money, how much money was in that suitcase when they slid it across the table to convince Judd Bushler to come on to the last dance? I thought that was kind of the fun. We're going to see a new one every episode, right? Like, I'm, we should start making bets. Like, I think my next one is Luke Longley. I think it's time to bring Luke into the dock. You know, something, it's going to be Bobby Hansen. I think it's going to be Luke Longley. We saw, Joe, <laughs> we, we saw Joe Klein already, so, like, give me a break. Um, Aaron, your thoughts on Judd Bushler? Judd, Judd, the one thing I always remember about Judd, he was that dude who had so much chest hair, would be coming out the top of his jersey, and he would shave, a clean-shaven face, and he would shave all the way down to where his hair started popping out of his jersey. That's what I remember about Judd Bushler. <laughs> yeah, he really took his time with it. Yeah, that was, that was very frightening as he came in to hit, like, one random three every, yeah. eight, every eight games. 
Um, and then the other one I wanted to hit was we did see Horace. We had talked, where was Horace in the first two episodes? We did get a little taste of Horace and boy, Horace delivered, right? I mean, there's already an article out about a young little girl. She spoke her first words for the first time. And her first words were straight up bitches uh, copied from <laughs> Horace Grant in the documentary. Uh, so it's great to see Horace. And then the other one was, I got to ask you guys, is the documentary building up a quiet D story Scott Burrell narrative arc right now? Like they're kind of, they keep dropping, they've dropped Scott Burrell in the beginning at the Euro championships. They dropped Scott Burrell again on the airplane. And let's all just keep in mind that 98 season against the Nets in the clinching game in game three, 23 points, nine of 11 shooting, three of five from three-point land. Scott Burrell went nuts. Well, Scotty went two of 12. For those of you that are wondering, MJ in that game, oh, I don't know, just went 16 of 22 with 38 points. But are we like somehow getting, like, are we going to be getting the story of Scott Burrell? And do we want that? <laughs> I mean, who, uh, who can't get enough of Scott Burrell, right? Uh, you know, it was awesome to see Horace. Um, apparently, the reason why he wasn't in the first two episodes was because he was eating some Italian beefs at Portillo's because, man, that guy's big now. Getting after um, it. <laughs> and then uh, my fan favorite for me, uh, uh, hailing from my alma mater, uh, BJ Armstrong. It was great to see him. Like, BJ still looks like he's, like, 21 years old. Like, the guy has not aged, it doesn't seem like. At so. all. Um, but yeah, yeah, the, uh, you know, <laughs> Jeb Bushler looks like he's probably operating a hedge fund somewhere, you know, down, uh, down in the murk. So, um, but yeah, it's great to see kind of the sprinklings of all these guys from that roster. And, uh, yeah, you're, you're definitely right, Joey. They are laying some groundwork for some kind of Scott Burrell story. Um, <laughs> what's happening? Cause, yeah. Cause apparently, I mean, he, it sounds like he's like mini Rodman, right? Like near the end of that episode where he's, I guess, just going out there drinking every night and, yeah, I can't, I can't figure out if they're, like, doing it as, like, a foreshadowing for, like, Jordan's drinking and gambling and staying out all night, like, him giving him a hard time, or they actually are drilling in on a Scott Burrell narrative story of some kind of, like, he's maybe the template of, like, Jordan rides his ass hard, and then he comes up with a big game in the playoffs or something. Um, Aaron, besides Jed, Judd the Chest Bushler, um, Horace Grant, Scott Burrell, uh, any, any of these ancillary characters that you're interested in right now? Um, well, I was going to say, real quick story. Uh, Joey was talking about BJ Armstrong. Um, years ago, I worked for United Airlines at O'Hare Airport, and I happened to see BJ in, in, you know, in, in the terminal. I was like, holy cow. So I walked through. I'm like, hey, BJ, big fan. Is your way to get your autograph? And he was like, uh, yeah, sure. So he signs him. I'm like, hey, thanks a lot, man. I appreciate it. I walk away. I'm like, man, why was he in such a bad mood? Didn't even dawn on me. He got traded the night before. <laughs> he was leaving to Chicago. He was so mad. I had no idea. I had no clue. Man, I hope you never leave the Bulls, Mr. Armstrong. Have a great year in Chicago, Mr. Armstrong. Thanks, BJ. <laughs> he was leaving town. <laughs> That does remind me of, uh, do you guys remember when you were kids when, um, like, I, like, I once went to a McDonald's and waited in line for an hour and 45 minutes to get BJ Armstrong's autograph because he was at a McDonald's. And I used to do that, too. Like, I went and got John Paxson's autograph because he was at a Blockbuster video. I'm not kidding you. for like, And, and I waited, like, in line for an hour. 
Um, those were the days, man. <laughs> those were the days. Or when Michelangelo would come to Toys R Us, that was also a big deal for me too as well. <laughs> <laughs> also, Aaron, go ahead. Real quick side story. Uh, years ago in high school, Choi and I uh, went to go see uh, Sean Kemp, my favorite player. He was doing a signing at a mall. We took our friend's little brother. We went there, waited for three hours. He was like two hours late. I think 50 people got an autograph. And they're like, okay, that's it. Done for the day. Yeah, was that like uh, was that like Bloomingdale's or Macy's or something? They would do a lot of signing. Oh, we drove like, far for that. We drove yeah, like an was, hour away, man. So it wasn't. Yeah, close. it was like South Suburbs or something, man. It was it was pretty far. So yeah, we never got that Sean Kemp autograph. <laughs> you know, why why is that too? They'd always be like, uh, "Come on down, Cliff Levingston's going to be signing autographs at Hinsdale." Um, like, <laughs> What's he doing? What's he doing there? You're like, we all know he lives in Deerfield. What are we doing? Uh, all right, guys, we're going to end on this, and honestly. I think it's pretty obvious. It's the, my favorite part of episodes three and four of any moment at all. And I think it's an unbelievable tactic that this director is using right now. And it is when he hands MJ the iPad and lets MJ watch Isaiah Thomas's reaction and or excuse for not shaking his hand at the end of the 90 conference finals. And honestly, like, I don't even know if I have words for it, but just Jordan's reaction is just so pure MJ and so true and awesome and hilarious. And I think like that moment right there is the reason why this documentary exists. And I think it's the reason why it is resonating with so many people that aren't just diehard Bulls fans. And I just want to talk about that reaction because that is everything I've ever wanted out of MJ. You know what I mean? Like, just, I mean, come on, man. You know, that was bullshit. You know, like this is, uh, it was just my favorite part of the whole, the whole, uh, the two episode sprint on this last Sunday. Yeah. Um, I, I just, yeah, his reaction when they, when they handed him the iPad initially, just the reaction of him, them handing he him that he was, yeah, he like, didn't want to watch it. He was already and that. That's like the only time I feel like Jordan's really, really shown his shown his true self so far in his interviews and you see how like pissed off he is, how disgusted he is and how he's just like not having it, you know? And, and Hey, I'm with him. Yeah. And it's like, he still was an asshole. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) and uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's the, I think that's what's ultimately going to make this, this documentary so special and memorable is you really are getting like a plus Jordan right now. And we haven't seen that from him in you know in in decades i mean we got the hall of fame speech which people made fun of personally i thought that thing was awesome like to call out all the people that doubted you i mean like everyone's like oh that's petty it's like why is it petty because he's michael jordan like he's still a person people still like doubted him and and told him that he was no good or told him that he couldn't keep winning on like i don't know i personally I, i i love that stuff and the thing about jordan specifically that like i instilled in me as a kid was you know if you fail like that just just that that shouldn't make you want to quit or shouldn't make you think that you you suck that should make you burn harder to come back and try and beat someone if someone can tell you that you can't do something that should like piss you off to want to succeed and i just thought that moment right there was just probably my favorite jordan moment so far of the first four episodes yeah for me i mean it's so Listen, I don't want to talk ill of a guy because he's a Chicago native, you know, was a superstar at St. Joe's. But from, from, when he, from his playing days, I always thought Isaiah Thomas was fake. 
I always thought that guy was so disingenuous. So for him to kind of give that interview and kind of have this revisionist history to how that whole situa situation went down, it was such bullshit. Like you guys were just poor sports. You guys were babies. And to some degree, I mean, I guess, did you expect anything less from the Pistons after the Bulls finally beat them to just walk away like the sore losers they were? So, I mean, he could, he should have just manned up and said, yeah, you know what? Like at the time we, we just, we, we, yeah, we just, uh, we were poor sports about it. But the fact that he's like, oh, the Celtics did this to us to, you know, in our run and blah, blah, blah. Like it's just, it's such a fake response. So yeah, the was, whole, the, the excuse of that's how it was back then. Um, you know, only goes so far. And I think that extends to any, um, any action that you probably borderline regret from your past uh, using the excuse of that's just how it was back then. While albeit true, doesn't always make it okay, right? <laughs> and I think, that's, uh, I think that's the grander point there. And it's pretty clear that Jordan has never gotten over it, uh, nor should he ever get over it. And I'll be honest with you, I've never gotten over it either. Um, my, my hate for the Pistons has been completely resurrected throughout this podcast. Um, I saw on, uh, what was it? I think it was like the House of Highlights on Instagram. There was a thing about how, uh, can you imagine if the Detroit Pistons had drafted Carmelo Anthony instead of Darko Militic? And I was just like, good. You second rate, <laughs> you second rate piece <laughs> of shit. I don't like you, Detroit Pistons. Grand Hill ain't shit. Take that. I love kicking your ass on Christmas Day. Go ahead, Aaron. Yeah, it's funny, like, you know, what, what is it now, 20 years later, 30, I don't even know the math, 20 years later, whatever, um, and it's, I still don't like the Pistons, it's weird, that's why I, I thought it was really weird that D. Rose went to the Pistons, and I'm like, you're from Chicago, I get us the NBA, you need a job, whatever, I get all that, but it's just like, how do you go to the, I, I still, I, I still don't like the Pistons, it's almost like Bears and Packers, like, there's no way you like the Packers, and, and the Bulls and Pistons, besides those couple of years, don't have that same kind of history, but because of those two, three years, I still can't. It's weird. Yeah, I, 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 like people, I, I like people on the Pistons. I just can't ever like the Pistons ever. Like, I just can't. Yeah. I mean, give it up for Flip Murray. I mean, how can we, how can we say no? Say no to the Pistons. Pistons, great. Flip Murray. Um, all right, guys. I think that's going to do it. Any final thoughts? Anything that you guys are like, looking forward to seeing? Anything that you're kind of hoping to see uh, moving forward in the episodes? five and six, which I think we're going to do individual pods on. We're at this point now where I think we're going to start breaking down each episode on betting Chicago as we go along. Uh, Mike, any final thoughts of what you want to see, how you're feeling, where we're going? You know, um, I, there's a little bit of, uh, uh, I've got this kind of like eerie trepidation of the next couple of episodes because I know that uh, at least in the previews for the next two episodes, uh, it looks like they're going to kind of start to talking about Michael and Kobe's dynamic. And I know that Kobe gave interviews for the series. So that's going to be really eerie um, to see Kobe getting interviewed. Um, and whether, whether or not it's these next coming episodes or later down the road, I know that he's been interviewed for this. So that, that'll be something that'll be really interesting to see and how they, they kind of obviously weave that in given, given what's happened this last year with him. Aaron, something you're looking forward to, a prediction? What are you thinking? Um, I don't know about predictions or, or anything like that. The one thing I just want to mention, one last thing, the, uh, these two episodes that I liked a lot that we didn't touch on was the, uh, the, uh, the video of, of the airplane and the joyous celebration and Jerry Krause dancing. And the running everyone, man. He did the running man. <laughs> everybody going crazy. Dude, I love that moment. I was, 
I was laughing so hard. And it was just cool to see everybody on there because we've been talking about how much shit everybody gave Jerry Krause. And it was like a genuine happy moment for even the guys in the plane who didn't necessarily like Krause to see him dancing and everybody just having a good time. Yeah, that's a great point. Like at some point, even if you do hate each other, you all did it together. And at some point you do have to kind of acknowledge that and think for maybe half a second that they all collectively sort of needed each other in that moment to be the, to, the parts kind of maybe needed to be the sum. And I think that's a big reason why Jordan won six titles was that he realized that I could still be incredible, but I need to have some of that rub off on some of my teammates too as well. Um, thank you so much for joining me, guys. This was a lot of fun. We're going to be yeah. coming back again. Mike Choi and Aaron Hagel for Last Dance Reaction right here on Believe in Betting Chicago. Uh, my name is Joy Christopoulos. Today's episode was brought to you by betonline.ag. Make sure you use our promo code when you go to the website, MyPod100, and they're going to give you a welcome bonus on your first deposit. So make sure you definitely check that out, and hopefully you can win a little cash. Thank you so much for joining us, you guys. Be safe, be healthy, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.